Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yes, indeed. And we have some great help, as usual, from our friend from the University of Minnesota, Julie Weisenhorn. Good morning, Julie. Sure is nice Hi, to hear from you. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sometimes this live radio stuff is pretty exciting, isn't it? <laughs> well, when you get a new phone, you know, all sorts of things go out the window. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So that's the deal, to be uh, open about it. You, you got a new phone and couldn't find the number. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It got happens. It well, I tell you what, Julie is with us. And if you have uh, any kind of a lawn or garden question, and if you're familiar with the show, you know we are we get very busy with it. We don't want to miss out on uh, your phone call or text question for Julie. So uh, do it earlier rather than later. And that number is the same for both phone call and text questions. 651-989-9226. Julie, how are you guys f- faring in this weather? We're going to have another hot day today. Not quite as hot as we've had it, but still uh, still some sick, uh, sticky. How is your garden doing at home? My garden is doing great, uh, it, but there are plants now that are kind of winding down, like uh, I've got a cucumber vine that's growing in a container, and it is looking really ratty, and so I'm going to be taking that out and replacing that probably with something just for fall color, maybe a mum or something like that, but um, yeah, there's a few things. They're starting to go downhill, and uh, but that said, there's a lot of late-blooming flowers uh, like rudbeckias and asters that are starting to bloom now. So that's exciting. That's always great to see. And the and the bees that are hanging around, I've had so many pollinators in my garden. I have never seen so many before and so much diversity. It's great. That's good news. Good news. Yeah. All right. I, I, I got a text earlier this morning, Julie, that I thought might be a, a, a good uh, uh, fitting to uh, talk about the website, the university website. Let me let me read the text and see if you don't agree. A texter says, I live in a townhouse complex. Driveways are close together, about 35 to 40 feet between driveways. The current ash tree will be taken down because the root system is damaging the driveway. The question is, what is a good replacement a tree with a root system that will not damage the driveway? West side oh. of the house soil on the clay side. I mean, it, yeah. What do That's you think? hard to say. That's hard to say because roots from trees spread out way beyond their canopies when they're mature. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before that tree damages or moves its root system into the driveway area. It sounds like 30 to 40 feet. That's pretty good. I would go for maybe a, a columnar form tree. It's not going to cast the amount of shade and uh, but it will actually create somewhat of a barrier between houses, and that's always kind of nice for privacy. 
You could also mix that columnar tree with maybe some blooming shrubs and have a little bit more interest than just a single tree. So you could do a combination of that. And then each each person on the side, if, if the uh, housing area allows it, the HOA, they could also plant maybe some uh, pollinator plants on their side of the uh, of the uh, planting so that they can have something along their driveway too. And I would choose herbaceous plants for that so that if you're moving snow, you can dump that snow on those plants because they'll have died back for the winter. Kind of mix it up. Add some diversity in there. That would be a good idea. That's a great idea. Thanks for the text. 651-989-9226. You can call it in too if you like. Here's a text, uh, Julie, that says, I know that watering our evergreens is very important before winter, and I'm wondering if there is an additional task I should do to keep them looking good come next year. Well, that is a that is a very good question. Right now, really watering is the main thing to do. Uh, you don't really want to encourage a lot of growth right now, like by pruning or fertilizing, because unfortunately, I hate to tell everybody we're moving toward dormancy with our plants. And we don't recommend pruning plants after about mid-August. So we're getting up to that point. And the reason for that is every time you make a cut on a plant, it prompts that plant to grow, to push out some new growth in that location where you've made the cut. And when you do that, it takes a while for that uh, plant to push out that new growth. But by the time we get to a colder weather, you know, our colder weather season, that new growth will not have hardened off properly and you could lose it. So right now we say, don't prune your shrubs, don't prune your uh, evergreens, uh, don't fertilize at this point. Water, water, water is important, especially when we haven't had any rain. Yeah, very good. Tell you what, let's grab a phone call. We're getting a bunch of both, as you can well imagine. Uh, Lois is calling in, uh, Julie, from Minneapolis, I believe. Lois, you're on with Julie. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I have a tomato plant, a potted tomato plant on my deck. And just recently, the bottom leaves have all been turning yellow. And I'm wondering if I'm watering too much because I was watering every day. And, yeah, um, so so plants do that, the tomato plants will do that. They are, uh, it can be a number of different things. Uh, basically for tomatoes, we have early and late blight here in Minnesota, and we have septoria leaf spot. And all of those can produce a yellowing of leaves and having those drop off. And a couple ways to avoid that in the future is choose a resistant variety of tomato. Look for those that are the most disease resistant. And also mulching, even in containers, you can mulch your tomato and mulch the soil because these pathogens, these fungi or bacteria are resident in the soil uh, and can splash up onto leaves. So mulching will prevent that from happening uh, when it rains, you know, the water uh, hits that soil and splashes up. The other thing too is, is to be sure that every year you're using fresh soil. So this is unused soil for tomatoes, especially because they are susceptible to these soil diseases. And then also cleaning your pots, your pruners, your gloves, your tomato cages, uh, when you, before you're handling the tomatoes. So when you plant your tomato, clean your tomato cage, uh, with a bleach solution. And use clean gloves. Don't move from plant to plant because then you can carry pathogens that way. And if you're pruning off, say, some of the smaller leaves on a tomato, be sure that you wipe down your pruner also with some bleach and water. 
Uh, we have an excellent webpage on how to disinfect and clean your tools, including tomato cages, pots, your, your pruners, etc. And that can be found on our extension site. So that's extension.umn.edu. Go to Yard and Garden. And we also have a ton of good information about tomato diseases as well. Excellent. Of course, we'll pass along that information before Julie leaves us today. Julie, we'll take a quick break here and be right back on the other side with more of our Smart Garden Show here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Stay with us. And good morning. Welcome back to our Smart Garden Show around every Saturday here in the 11 o'clock hour on WCCO Radio. Julie Weisenhorn is with us from the U of M helping you out today. And as usual, Julie, many callers, many texters as well. Uh, I'll tell you what, Richard and Lakeville have been waiting there quite a while. Richard, thank you for your patience. What uh, What do you want to ask Julie? Hi. Um, primary question is, you know, for some reason, I'm being hit really hard with dead grass due to uh, Japanese beetles. And I've been through this before on a different house that we owned. And by pulling up the grass, it just comes right out of the ground. So I know it's, it's without probability, something's eating the roots underneath. Uh, my question is, I'm not really keen on heavy chemicals in the lawn. I'm wondering what her opinion is on uh, beneficial nematodes and milky spores. Okay, good question, Richard. Uh, yes, it does sound, it sounds like you actually have grub issues and the grubs could be grubs from Japanese beetles, but they might also be from June bugs and other large beetles like that. Milky spore does not work well here in Minnesota because of our temperatures. And uh, and the beneficial nematodes might be something to try. Um, I'm not sure. You're going to have to check the timing for that. So when you go to look at uh, treating for grubs on our website or if you look at, uh, if you talk to somebody who you're going to order them from, because usually you'd have to order the nematodes, uh, you would want to time it. And timing is everything. The uh, The beetles that we see, uh, for example, in the spring, the grubs are very large. These are grubs that have overwintered uh, from the Japanese beetles, and then they hatch, they pupate into the uh, adults, and that's what we see. And then the adults start laying eggs, and there's grubs in the ground uh, probably around, oh, about this time or so, and that's what you're seeing. So treatment timing is very particular most of the time, you wouldn't treat for grubs. You treat for them in early July, so we've kind of passed that window. So you're correct. I mean, anything you use on the soil now probably is, you know, may not affect them very much. So I would check on the nematodes and check with the, the supplier of that as to when you would try that or if that's uh, the appropriate time to do that. Uh, and then uh, I think next spring, since you've had this problem now a couple of years, Next, uh, you would want to uh, pay attention to that next spring. You want to do things like water your lawn less so that it's less favorable to grubs. They like kind of a moist condition. Not much you can do if we have a rainy spring, I know. Uh, and I would also take a look at our Japanese beetle management webpage because that has a good explanation for timing for some of these issues. So I'm sorry to hear you have grub problems, and I'm I'm really glad that you have definitely identified them. And pulling that grass back is exactly right. So, um, you know, good luck with that. And uh, if you have additional questions, you can always send them to Ask a Master Gardener and send some photographs. 
and we can probably help to zero in a little bit better than we can on the radio show for you. And where do they send those to, Julie? The, on our extension site, it's extension.umn.edu, and uh, go to Yard and Garden and write, scroll right down to Ask a Master Gardener, and there's a whole bunch of us that are fielding questions right now. Excellent. Uh, Texter says this, Julie, we have 12 out of 60 Techni Arborvitae that have begun to turn brown. Now, if the cause is blight or fungus, uh, how can we save them? They're 10 years old and look great until now. With the number of trees that you have, and because trees are so valuable to properties, as are lots of plants, but particularly trees are a big investment, I would contact a certified arborist to come in and take a look at those. You may end up sending a sample to our plant disease clinic on the campus, um, but I would have a certified arborist come in first. It could be something that's abiotic, meaning something that is not a disease, not a pathogen or an insect issue, but something, say, the amount of soil that's around them, the type of soil, the way they were planted. Uh, it could be animal browsing. Uh, it might be uh, a number of other different things. So we also have a great website, web page on that, on our website, about how to hire a tree professional. And that not only does it give you a way to find a tree professional, but also some good questions to ask them. Good. Great. Again, we'll mention that site, as we always like to do, before Julie leaves us today. Uh, Let's grab another phone call, Julie. Jan, I believe, is waiting there in New Brighton to ask you a question. Jan, thank you. And what is your question for Julie? Good morning, everyone. Um, I have a question about common lilacs. We have two large, well-established common lilacs, and about um, a quarter to a third of each of the bushes, um, the leaves are getting crispy and starting to die. Um, there's no sign of cankers, and it does not appear to be powdery mildew. And we've never had this before. Any ideas? Yes, this has been a problem this year. We've had many questions uh, through our master gardeners about lilac dieback. Um, according to our plant disease clinic, uh, we had a very cold temperatures uh, without snow cover that might have compromised root systems. But some of the issues that we've seen uh, has been a fungal disease that is called, and I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly, Pseudocercospora. This is a leaf spot disease, and there's been a number of samples that have come through and are still coming through the plant disease clinic and being analyzed and finding this uh, fungal disease, this leaf spot disease, to be the case, to be what's happening. And the symptoms are just as you described the leaves kind of turn yellow and then they turn brown. And it's quite quick and it's pretty uh, random sometimes. Um, cleaning up around, the, cleaning up the fallen leaves is important. So sanitation in this case, getting in there and raking up fallen leaves because this fungal, these fungal spores can overwinter in your soil and affect your plants next year. Uh, you can also do some renewal pruning and we have uh, some good information on that on our Lilac webpage on how to do that. This decreases the density of the canopy of the lilacs. Now, you're going to prune out some branches that may have produced flowers next year, but I think it's important to do this uh, and kind of sacrifice a year of flowers to improve the plant health. And, uh, and that will help to also um, open up light and allow uh, air to flow through that canopy. And then you just want to keep watering your plants to keep them stress-free. And uh, so that's, we're going to be having an article about that on our Yard and Garden News 
coming out in the next week or so. But um, yeah, we think it's a fungal uh, spot disease that's causing that. But those are some things you can do to help minimize it. Very good. Julie, hang on. We need to take a quick break. Smart Garden returns here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Stay with us. And welcome back to our Smart Garden show. Denny along in this end and Julie Weisenhorn from the University of Minnesota helping you out today by phone and by text as usual. And as usual, Julie, we have both to keep uh, to keep you busy. I think Ken and Blaine has been waiting the longest. Uh, Ken, thank you. And uh, what is your question for Julie? Good, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, morning. I have... Uh, magnolia scab and i uh understand i've actually purchased some uh, systemic insecticide and i was looking at an iowa state publication and they said the best time to use that is like the last week of august and uh I, the question i have is does it i have four magnolias and i have an ann magnolia that has a lot of it and then i have some on the other ones does it spread from tree to shrub to shrub to tree, like it's from one magnolia to another, and does it actually go to other types of trees or shrubs? And where does it come from? I mean, I haven't had anything like this, and all of a sudden this year I have a lot of it. Magnolia, I think it's magnolia scale that you're talking about if you're looking, if you have a systemic for it. So magnolia scale is a uh, a sucking insect that's protected by a covering, and that's what makes it very hard to treat. So a systemic, which is a type of uh, pesticide that is taken up through the roots of the trees and transferred to the rest of the plant uh, to kill the insect when it sucks on the plant tissues is what is recommended for scale. There's lots of kinds of scale, but magnolia scale is particularly devastating. And while scale, the good thing about scale is that they're very slow movers. You don't see, they don't fly in any of their life stages. They don't move from tree to tree that way. But if trees are touching, uh, if trees, if parts of trees are carried, if tools are carried, I guess it could potentially move from tree to tree. So if you're doing pruning on your a tree with scale, and then you go over to prune. The other one, you would want to disinfect your uh, your uh, tool that you're using to prune with. Scale is super hard to get rid of, and I'm really sorry to hear that you have it. I've heard a number of people who have said that they've had magnolia scale. I do not know where it comes from. Uh, it may come on the nursery material, but if you have a mature tree, it could have been there a long, long time, and you just never noticed it because it's very slow-growing. But it, but once it takes hold of your plant, it, it's very difficult to get rid of. The one concern about systemics that you just need to know, and you've probably probably found this as you've read the label on the on the uh, chemical, is that it can. Uh, you want to be sure that it well, it can actually harm uh, pollinators if it's applied at the a time when the plants are flowering. So uh, so the timing is important too. So be sure to read the label and apply it accordingly. Um, if your other magnolias are not touching that tree or anywhere near it, then you may be okay, but I would definitely keep an eye out. You know what it looks like now, and keep an eye out for a uh, scale coming in on those trees too. So I'm sorry to hear that magnolias are beautiful, and that scale, is that's really hard to get rid of, very difficult. So good luck. I hope it. Uh, hope you get some relief from it. You can also... You could also, if you see it, that it's very 
uh, isolated on, say, one or two branches, you may just try pruning out that one or two, those branches, and see uh, if that helps. That will knock it down at least. Hmm. All right. I know, Julie, you wanted to revisit the grub question we talked about earlier. I did because I felt like I didn't give the gentleman a very good answer. Oh. <laughs> um, I, during the commercials, which is one good reason we have commercials, is I was able to look on our website about Japanese beetle management and the biological insecticides available for grub control. Unfortunately, none of them are terribly consistent in their effectiveness. So milky spore is one. There's also Bacillus thuringiensis gallerea. That's a bacterial strain uh, of a, 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 a that produces a toxin. It affects just beetle adults and larvae, uh, and but it hasn't been very consistent in in the results that we get in university trials. The parasitic nematodes that uh, the gentleman asked about they uh, do not affect beneficial insects, which is great. Uh, but they and they need to be applied after the eggs have hatched. So this would be an appropriate time to do that. The grubs uh, emerged in July and they should be relatively small still. And uh, and if you're going to apply them, you want to apply them when the weather is cool and overcast. So stay away from it this weekend. If you have your nematodes, don't apply them this weekend because it's going to be hot. But next week looks like it's going to be pretty nice. And then you want to water it. Water them uh, before and after application because they are susceptible to drying out. And you can try it, but they've also been fairly inconsistent. So if you, uh, we do have, of course, uh, pesticides, synthetic pesticides that are used for grub control. And if you visit our Japanese beetle management webpage, you'll see a list of those, uh, both preventative that can be applied in the spring and then also curative, which will be applied probably about now through September. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. Uh, Texter, and this is a very timely, I think, question. You can tell me. Uh, It says, uh, he or she says this, I need to plant a new lawn for a new build home. Would I be okay starting that in August, or should I wait until September? We're coming up to that window, aren't we? We are, and actually fall is a great time to seed, and it's a great time to, uh, you can still sod at this point. On our lawn care calendar, there's lots of things that we're doing early August and mid-August through mid-October, things like aerating our lawns, fertilizing, seeding. Uh, I'm just li- reading down the list here. Um, broadleaf weed control in September through late October. So this would be a good time to do it. Um, and if you're going to sod, you could sod now. Uh, probably uh, you want to start that a little bit later in the month if you're going to use sod, and you can sod up till late October uh, just as long as you're keeping it watered. If you're going to seed, uh, you can seed early August through late September. So this is a good time to do that. You can also do a dormant seeding in uh, mid, about mid-November or so. And that's where we put down the seed and it doesn't germinate until spring. So it's kind of like getting a jump start on the spring. So yes, the fall is the best time to do lawn care. And if you look at our Minnesota lawn care calendar, it gives you some the best time to do it and kind of an okay, like a second choice. <laughs> So uh, this is a great time to do a lot of lawn care work. Yeah, I think I'm going to be doing a little bit of that myself, as a matter (laughs) of fact. Perfect time of year. Now, here's the text, Julie. It says, my second-year clematis plant has holes in the leaves. One vine has turned brown. Should I put a pesticide on it? That comes from Judy. Oh, Judy, do not put a pesticide on anything until you know what it is that is causing the problem. Now, the leaves may have turned brown. Clematis are super brittle, 
And I know that when I monkey around uh, my clematis vine, I often break the, the stems. They're very fragile, and they wind up turning brown and dying. So don't I wouldn't link the two necessarily together. Uh, those holes could be if they're very rounded holes. They could be from uh, from a type of bee that a leaf cutter bee it's called. Uh, if it's just cosmetic, it sounds like it's not uh, like it may not be killing the plant at this point. So don't put any pesticide down. You want to try to identify what's causing the problem. Or if you can get a photo of an insect that you see on there, on your plant that might be causing that, send a photo into Ask a Master Gardener. We'll see if we can identify for you. There's a lot of beneficials uh, out there, and we don't want to be treating unnecessarily. Very good. Let's go back to the phones, Julie. I think New Prague is our next stop. Mary is calling in from New Prague with a question. Thanks, Mary. What's your question? Um, I was wondering what causes rust on green beans. Is that from uh, the humidity in the air or what? Yeah, it probably is. That's uh, rust are spores that um, are, you know, landing on the beans and making that kind of rusty spotting on it. And it is increased with humidity. We had, uh, you know, quite a streak of that hot, humid weather. and, And we've really bounced around this year. Uh, as a gardener, I find it quite frustrating because, you know, this past week has been fantastic around my uh, neck of the woods, uh, and now we're coming up to this hot, sweaty weekend. <laughs> so uh, it's been a tough year for gardeners to really zero in on things, and so the rust can be exasperated, exasper- <laughs> can be worsened by, uh, <laughs> by that hot, humid weather. You're exactly right. Easy for you to say, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. Stumbled over that one. <laughs> <laughs> Julia Texter wants to know, how can I get rid of plantain in my large lawn? Oh, plantain. So plantain is um, uh, an indicator weed, and I'm trying to think. I think it's very it's compact soil, so uh, compaction. So our soils become very compacted over many years of walking and playing and moving equipment on our lawns and things. So you might try aeration. Uh, You can also apply a broadleaf herbicide to your lawn. Uh, It sounds like if you have a a huge amount of it, uh, it may be an area that you want to kill off or, and then uh, renovate. And again, this is a good time to do it. Good time to do some of that broadleaf control and then also do some renovation as well. So uh, killing it off and then reseeding uh, that area or sodding that area. Seeding is usually better than sodding. It blends in a little bit better with your existing lawn. But yeah, aeration would probably help quite a bit to loosen the compaction and then overseeding with a, uh, to create a denser lawn would help too. For those familiar with Julie and her band, The Abiders, a texter says, <laughs> any chance Julie's band will be playing soon? <laughs> it's not oh, a long man. Garden question. We but... just got that question yesterday from a good friend of ours. And uh, we are on the COVID hiatus at this point oh, yes. because uh, we just are not able to get together safely. We don't feel that way. Um, we're still holding out that maybe the beer fest, the Tonka Brew Fest in early November will happen in some shape, way, shape, or form. We don't know what that sounds like, but we're still waiting to hear. That's the only thing that we have on our uh, gig right now. But if you friend me on Facebook, you can see some uh, videos of my husband and I doing some songs from our uh, from the big room here on uh, Bluebird Lane. So right. um, 
that's about as good as we can get. We're hoping to get some more stuff up there, too. So friend me on well, Facebook, hope, and, and uh, you can look at those videos. Let's hope things change here down the road. Yeah. All right, Julie, let's uh, let's take a quick break here. We have more show to come on our Smart Garden Show. 651-989-9226 is the phone number, also our text number, and we'll be back with both. Here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Hey, good morning. Welcome back to our Smart Garden Show on CCO Radio on this Saturday morning. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. Julie Weisenhorn is with us from the University of Minnesota. Julie, why don't we get that website again, that extension website, which is such a great resource. We love that. Yeah, great. It's extension.umn.edu. Go to Yard and Garden. You can also just use the search box and type in your uh, question or topic and uh, should pop up a whole bunch of different things for you. Yeah, it's fun. Say, uh, Texter says this, and we have a bunch of them, Julie. Let's see if we can't do a lightning round here. Sounds uh, good. When can a, a young hickory tree be trimmed up? It's sort of a tall bush now. I think you could trim that up now. Um, probably, ideally, it should have been trimmed up right after it bloomed, and uh, and uh, partly because that would because it's going to be setting buds for the next year kind of a well, late spring, early summer bloomer. But you could do some trimming now if it was if it's getting in the way or it's a hazard or something like that. So you might lose a few flowers on those uh, the branches that you take off, of course, but um, might be better for the tree overall. Listener wants to know, what causes a pumpkin plant to have multiple blossoms but only one very large pumpkin? The others do not seem to be progressing into a pumpkin shape, wondering if there's a deficiency in the soil. Probably not the soil, but I know from uh, just answering questions about squash, which is the same family, uh, that the um, the extreme heat that we had, those really hot temperatures, the, uh, the plants don't set, there's male and female flowers, and they don't set as many of the female flowers, or they abort the flowers because they just can't hang on to them or support them throughout that hot weather. So it might just be a lower year for uh, your pumpkin production this year. Uh, the other idea, too, is you could have a lot of male flowers, and, not, and you could have female flowers, but you don't have the pollinators going between the two, carrying the pollen from the male flowers to the female flowers. So encouraging pollinators by planting pollinator-friendly plants around your pumpkin patch is really important. Um, I'm guessing, though, it's that hot weather that probably caused some of those female flowers to, to fall off before they were matured. Okay. Let's uh, go back to the phones, Julie. Let's go to Little Falls. I think Marilyn is there to ask you a question. Good morning, Marilyn. Yes, good morning. I have, good morning. I have the Miss Manor Obedient Plant, and this year it has mildew on, and it is near my flocks. Uh, it's about uh, six feet away from my flocks. I do not want my flocks to get the mildew. Is there any way I can prevent them from spreading? Uh, probably not at this point. Um, I would, in the spring, I would look for uh, a fungicide that uh, is for powdery mildew, and I would uh, treat it at the appropriate time, treat the plants at appropriate times. I, by now, the spores are probably on your uh, flocks. Um, you could thin out the plants as well. You could uh, also plant something that is non-powdery uh, mildew or that's powdery mildew resistant or not, you know, not susceptible to it between those plants. If there's space, uh, like ornamental grass would be good, that would prevent those spores then from, uh, or at least reduce them from moving from plant to plant. 
but I think you're kind of late for spraying anything on the flocks. Okay. I think we have time, Julie, for one more call, and then we'll grab some text messages. Tim is calling in from my Sandy this morning. Tim, you're on with Julie. Hello. I love you guys' show. I am uh, growing Brussels sprouts for the first time in my two gardens, and they're growing good, but the... There's holes all over the leaves, and the ends look like they kind of been eaten, but I have not seen one bug on them at all, and nothing else in my garden is like that. What could that be? Oh, man. Uh, boy, Brussels sprouts are not my cup of tea. I don't even like to eat them, but <laughs> but I think um, I would take a look at the um, insect, at what's wrong with my plant, and see uh, that's a tool that we have. And see if you can find any pictures on that. It's kind of a diagnosis, a self-diagnosing tool on our website. And go into vegetables and then find Brussels sprouts. You could also maybe look at uh, broccoli might also have a similar problem too because they're in the same, uh, kind of in the same uh, sort of plant. But it's probably a caterpillar that is uh, chewing on those leaves or it could be a leaf feeding beetle. Uh, It may not affect your production. It might just look lousy. And uh, and I would just um, kind of put that note in your book because uh, I'm sure you're probably keeping notes on your vegetable garden and just keep make a note for that and then pay attention to that next year and see if you can trap the little buzzard and see if you can we can find out what it is. You can always send pictures to ask a master gardener and we can maybe help a little bit better with some photos. We have so many texts, Julie. I think what I'm going to do is grab as many as we can and maybe uh... – Maybe we'll start the show, and I'm not sure who's going to be on next week with with me, but uh, I think maybe we can pick up where we left off today. What do you think? Sound good? There you go. All right. Now, here's here's another text. My tomato plants are very healthy and at least uh, four and a half inches in height and a lot of foliage, four and a half feet maybe. I have a lot of green tomatoes on it, but they are not ripening. Should I have been cutting these tomato plants back, or can I do it now, or is it too late? I would just leave them. Uh, they may have just slowed down in ripening because we had that very hot weather. That was another thing that uh, that, that hot weather can cause is some of these plants like tomatoes to slow down in ripening. So just be patient. Okay. Dexter wants to know, what is eating my sedum? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> That's a good one to send a photo in uh, to ask a master gardener, see if we can help you out. Yeah, that is. That's a, another good resource. <laughs> Another one, uh, here's one for you, Julie. Can I cut down gladiolas as soon as they quit blooming? I, I think so. I um, Boy, I know um, gladiolas, let's see, let me think about that. Um, I think you can cut them down. I actually am a fan of just leaving some of those plants standing and, uh, and just waiting until, uh, you know, they really completely die back. And because they're photosynthesizing and you're putting more energy into the bulbs. So I would just let them completely die, and then I would cut them down. This texter wants to put in a two-foot-wide perennial bed around a deck. And the question here she has is, should I put plastic sheeting before planting? Thank you. No, do not put plastic sheeting under there. That will prevent any water from getting to the soil. You could put landscape fabric that's permeable. Uh, but you really don't need it. If you're going to be mulching that bed to make it look nice, uh, you don't need to have any kind of uh, landscape fabric underneath that because the mulch basically breaks down on top of the fabric anyway, and you get weed seeds growing in it. So at least this way, the mulch, as it breaks down, it's enhancing your soil around your deck. 
Here's one for a 60-second answer. How not to spread cone flowers and flocks all over the place. Deadhead the flowers as soon as they're done. <laughs> okay. That That's was it. short and sweet. Uh, I tell you what, I, I know we have. Let, let's do this, Julie. I don't want to shorten any, anybody's question here. Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, thanks for your program. I notice a yellow and rust color on leaves of string beans and also on some of the yellow squash leaves. Leaves of broccoli, okra, uh, tomatoes, uh, etc. What might this be? So that's probably a rust like the earlier caller, and it's a spore that's in the area. If you have questions, if this is something you consistently have, you can also send a sample to our plant disease clinic at pdc.umn.edu. Excellent. Julie, thank you, as usual. And uh, let's let's talk soon, okay? Sounds good. All right. right. Thanks, Julie. Julie Weisenhorn from the University of Minnesota. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.